Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joining me today, she's an author, speaker, entrepreneur, podcast host, patient advocate. It's Andrea Wilson-Woods. How are you doing today, Andrea? I'm good, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what you like doing growing up. Oh, <laughs> Um, I don't know how to answer where I'm from. I like to say that I lived in every sort of small hick town in America because <laughs> when my parents met, they were both in the Air Force. Okay. So I'm an Air Force brat. We moved around quite a bit until I was about five. And then I spent elementary school in Arkansas, which is where my dad is from. Then my parents split up and I moved to Alabama and that's where my mom is from. But I was born in Kansas. I think we lived there six months. <laughs> um, you know, we moved, we moved a lot. Um, what I like to do when I was little, okay, I'll just share this story because it kind of illustrates it all. It's my dad's favorite story to tell about me as a little girl. So on Saturdays, when my parents were still married, my dad would go play golf on Saturdays. And he said he would love to come out. And we lived in this cul-de-sac and all the kids were around the same age. And he said, I would have all the kids around me you know, younger, older, didn't matter. And I would say, this is what we're going to do today. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was a little bossy, I guess. <laughs> but uh, that's his favorite story to share about me. A lot of people would probably enjoy traveling around the world, living in different places. But at a young age, is it definitely a different mindset traveling? Because as a kid, you just want to enjoy life, but you're not really understanding maybe why at the time until probably getting older and stuff. Did you have like a memorable moment in those first five years traveling before you stationed somewhere? No, not not really. I mean, I remember bits and pieces. I remember living in Wyoming and the snow there and how it's impossible to make a snowman because the snow <laughs> is so dry. But I mean, I was two or three, maybe. I mean, I just remember these little sort of snapshots. Um and then I remember moving, we moved like two or three times between the ages of four and six. And then finally started first grade, didn't start at the beginning of the year, but partway through the year. And then I was in that same place for uh, a long time. So I will tell you this, though, because of that, even though it was pretty early, I hate moving. Like with, <laughs> with, with the deepest, darkest passion, I cannot stand to move. You're someone that's like, once I'm set, I'm, I'm staying there. I'm staying there. I'm staying <laughs> there. Yeah. I mean, and, and I moved a lot when I lived in Los Angeles initially because I was a college student and that's what you do. You move constantly. And, um, and then once at one point got settled into a house I liked in a neighborhood I liked and I lived in that house. It's the longest I've lived anywhere my whole life. I lived there 13 years. Wow. Yeah. And, and I left eight years ago. You mentioned you stayed in Arkansas or you went, started living there for a longer period of time. Is there something about Arkansas that maybe people don't know that you enjoy? Or is there a certain spot, a hidden gem, something that maybe people don't know about? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Uh, No. Uh, No. I mean, no. No. When I was a kid, we went to Tulsa, Oklahoma for fun. Um, I lived right on the western uh, edge of Arkansas, about three miles from the border. We would go to Dallas for fun. So I, you know, I take that back. I would say I didn't live there, but my, my dad and stepmother did years later. The Ozarks are really beautiful. Okay. So that's the Northwestern part of the state, you know, the mountains. It's, it's gorgeous. 
You mentioned the story that your dad shared about how you are saying, not saying that you are that kind of characteristic, but do you see like that leadership type or that kind of boss manager style in you today? Like, has it still carried all the way to where you are in your career? It has, and it really has in my personal life as well. I mean, I, I'm usually sort of the, the, the center point for my friends. I mean, even in high school, we organized this trip to Daytona beach when Daytona was the cool place to go. And, and I organized all of it. I, you know, the trip, how much money we would need. And it was four of us all together and we split it four ways, but, but I did all the research and this is back before the internet. So I found us a place to stay by the beach. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm the person people go to, to get stuff done. See, that's how I am. I'm a person that likes to be organized. Like any school project, I'm like, okay, this is what needs to be done. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. It's usually 99% of the time it works out because I feel that I'm structuring it right. But I like having that kind of control to understand what needs to be done. Because if I give it to a friend of mine, they're just going to miss something or they're going to wait till the last minute and not book something or not do something. And I'm like, no, I'm a person that you have to plan it like three months in advance for me. <laughs> like, okay, we're doing this. That's like the running joke with my mom. It's like, she's like, you don't wait till last minute. But that's how I was always. And I feel like that carries to where I am today. Oh, I, and people do tease me about this. I'm probably the least spontaneous person I know. <laughs> and I just own it, right? I just own it. Like I do. If you tell me that we have a dinner reservation five years from now, I'll show up. I'll be there. You know, if I don't show up, I'm probably dead. So if I say I'm going to be someplace, I show up. And, and so I would say that's probably a pet peeve of mine with people who are flaky. And that's why I felt so terrible about two weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, but we're here now. So that's all that matters. I I feel so terrible. I'm still at the vet. I don't believe this. (laughs) Was there any challenge with having living in with divorced parents growing up? Oh God. Yes. Um, I used to say to my friends that my brother and I, I have a brother who's three years younger, that we were the glue, that we were what kept our parents together. And I wanted my parents to get divorced. I thought my life would be better if they got divorced because they they fought constantly. It was not like it wasn't a happy household. It wasn't a happy place to be as a kid. And they get divorced and then it just got 10 times harder. I mean, I just had no idea. And I, I'm the oldest and my parents told me things that were not appropriate. They would communicate through me and that, that wasn't fair to me, but I didn't know any better at the time. They kind of shielded my brother and, and didn't get him involved in those conversations as much. And so there was three years there where it was kind of miserable, um, going back and forth between my, my dad and stepmom and my mom. With being like the telephone between the two parents, did you feel that you needed to express what was going on to an outside party or someone different because it was a lot of stress for you or a lot on your plate? You ask great questions. Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't. I, I'm very protective. And so I, I, I didn't. And also, none of my other friends' parents were divorced. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think they could possibly understand. Um, I do think that that's when my, I can't believe I'm sharing this. This is the second time in a week I'm sharing this and I've never, I never talk about it. Um, I do think that's when my worst personal habit started 
So I've never bitten my nails or bitten my cuticles, but I pick my cuticles, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it started there, just like kind of as a way to just kind of handle stress. You know, at 10 years old, you're not going to, st- well, I didn't start smoking. I'm not a smoker. So I picked my cuticles. So. Uh, I think it started then. It was it was stressful. Well, definitely at that age, there's a lot of different things that a kid could get involved in or to relieve the stress. And I would say the route you took wasn't a most dangerous one no. <laughs> in that thing. But it shouldn't be on a 10-year-old to have to worry about all that. Did any, like, family members know what was going on? Or, like, with living? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, yes and no. My mother's family didn't live there. My dad's family did. But, um, I mean, are your parents divorced? Yes, but they okay. got, my parents got divorced when I was three. So I don't really remember them even together. Oh. But my mom remarried and then went through another divorce. And I was, I think I was in college when they got divorce and I saw a lot of it but I was also closer to my mom than him because he was a stepfather in a way right right um now I'm trying to remember your question uh no I no I don't think other family really knew I mean seventh grade was the worst year of my childhood and I was bullied in school um I had all kinds of stuff going on but I did never told anybody and I still made straight A's. So nobody knew any differently, but I hated, hated school. And I, and I usually really liked it, but wasn't, wasn't a good time. Really wasn't. Did you have anything like a passion project or something that could get your mind off of those things? Like away from school, was it a sports and activities, something different? Yeah. So I started ballet when I was five um, and it was my idea. We passed by a ballet studio and I looked in and this is one of my earlier memory memories. And I said to my mom, I said, I want to do what those girls are doing. And she was like, all right. And so, um, and so, yeah, I, I had ballet. Like that was my, that was my go-to place. That was my happy place. And I actually ended up going to performing arts high school uh, wow. with ballet. Did it ever lead to doing a different technique or a different kind of style? Or was it just mostly just ballet for you? It was mostly ballet until I went to college. And then I was able to take more modern and jazz classes. And then um, I like to joke that I danced at every theme park in Southern California (laughs) in my 20s, you know, from Knott's Berry Farm to Magic Mountain, whatever. Um, Universal Studios, I worked there a lot. So yeah, definitely other types of dancing. But if you have ballet as a base, you can almost do anything. Except hip hop. I'm a terrible hip hopper. And any anytime I've tried to do hip hop or anything like that, you know, years ago, not recently, a teacher would call me out. And I, I mean, I remember a teacher once said, how many years of ballet have you had? Like, because it shows. <laughs> you, can't, you can't shake it when you've had ballet that long. You can't shake it. Well, funny thing, I actually took a hip hop class. So. Did you? Yeah, <laughs> your name, and I'm like, she's gonna say hip hop. I know where this is going. Yeah, I can't. It, I am probably you see like those kids, the videos nowadays. I'm one of those kids who's making fun of themselves, but I'm just having fun out there, just dancing. I haven't taken one. I got a free class, and I'm like, I am done after this year. I don't want to do it anymore. But it was fun. It was a blast cool. for the time. Yeah, yeah, I still love dancing. I do. I really do. Did you have a dream job where sometimes we're asked, what's that dream job that we're wanting? What was that for you? 
I uh, I had three. I wanted to be a ballerina. I wanted to be an oceanographer and I wanted to be a oh. traveler. And I just frankly did not have enough talent to be the level of ballet dancer that I wanted to be. Um, and I quickly realized by high school that just because I like the ocean and want to live near the ocean doesn't mean that I should be an oceanographer <laughs> <So> <laughs> because science is my worst subject. I really struggled in science. And then um, as far as traveler, yeah, once I started traveling a lot, I realized, yeah, it's not so glamorous. It's pretty exhausting, actually. So I still like to travel and go places, but uh, to do it to do it as sort of a, a life thing, I don't think I would enjoy very much. So going to college, what was that route for you? Were, you mentioned California, but yep. what were you pursuing like as an education? So my goal was to move as far away from my mother as possible. <laughs> so, and I applied to schools in California. Um, by that time, my dad and stepmom had moved to Phoenix. And so it was kind of a way to be closer to my dad, but not us actually you know, go to school right there in Arizona. And I ended up pursuing acting because my ballet teacher actually recommended it. Like she thought mm. I would be a really good actress. And it's funny, I got into the school of journalism and didn't think that was such a big deal. It turned out it actually was. And then I, I got out of journalism and went to theater. Did you have like a dream like role that you were wanting for acting? I know some people, they want to go with the big movies or TV shows or soap operas. Did you have like that route that you were wanting? Um. You know, it was actually, it was pretty tough until the X-Files came along. Like I like to say the X-Files saved my career because I, I had a really versatile look. I could look different very easily. And so casting directors, if they can't look at you and in five seconds know where to peg you, it can be really hard. But then the X-Files happened. And especially at that time, Jillian Anderson and I looked almost identical. I mean, people would ask me for her autograph all the time and we're the same height. We were the same weight, same shape. And finally I started getting cast in the smart chick roles is what I call them. I got cast as like the, the lawyer or the scientist or the cop or things like that. Um, but I also discovered I had really great comedic timing. And so one of my goals was just to get a sitcom. I wanted a sitcom so I would have steady income and I could put my sister through school. And so that was like, you know, I didn't really care what it was. It was just a matter of steady money. So, What was the most challenging part by trying to find roles or to get into that kind of career path? Um, well, we haven't dived into it yet, but I, I was raising my sister by that point. And so she was my number one priority. And I think if you're going to go into a profession like acting or any arts where there's no clear path, right? There's no go to school, go to med school, go to postdoc, you know, go to residency where there's no sort of direct path. I think you have to be all in and it has to be your number one priority. And it wasn't for me. My number one priority was my sister. And 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 also just, you know, not having connections and and not having a very linear path. I mean, it can it's kind of all over the place. And, um, and so it can be really challenging and it's also very expensive. I think people yeah. underestimate how expensive it is to live in a city like Los Angeles or let's say New York. And then at the same time, you're supposed to be constantly 
perfecting your craft, well, those lessons, they cost a lot of money as well. Mm -hmm. Just from an outsider, you hear people talk about the path and getting a job where they could go 10 auditions before they finally get one. And maybe that one barely pays the rent. I mean, especially here nowadays with Los Angeles and how expensive it is in New York. I mean, I was just watching videos on social media where people go to people's apartments and see how much they're paying to what they actually live in. And it's just wild that people are so dedicated about that path and they're willing to do anything to get there. Yeah. I think it's actually in some ways, if you know how to use it, it's a lot easier with social media now. Yeah. You know, you, you can literally, let's be honest, be famous for just being famous. Right. And, and so if you are pursuing acting and you have a really good handle on what your brand is, you can really use social media to your benefit. Um, and I know for a fact that, and I'm so glad I'm not in it anymore, that it actually matters now with casting. Mm -hmm. And so I have a really good friend who, um, works for a huge studio. She's a VP of television And she hates the casting process and she mostly removes herself from it now because oftentimes the most talented person doesn't get the role. It's the person with the biggest social media following. Which is so bad. So So bad. bad. I hate that. I know. It's it's sad. But there are also a lot more opportunities now with, with streaming. Yes. You talked about gaining custody of your sister. Talk a little bit about that and what was going on and how did that happen for you? Yeah, so my my sister and I have the same mother, different fathers. Her father died before she was born, so she never knew him. And my sister was born after my mother and I moved to Alabama. And my brother ended up going with my dad and stepmom to Arizona. And so um, and so I really helped raise my sister. I, I was 13 when she was born, almost 14. And I was around during those really early years when she was a baby. And then when she was four, I ended up, you know, leaving and going across the country to go to school. And my mother just began to have more and more issues. She was a prescription drug addict. She'd always been really high functioning, always able to work. And, you know, when I left home, I I used to tell her I was her housewife because I did everything for her, everything. And she didn't really get that. And so she struggled. And then um, ultimately she ended up losing her nursing license for shooting up morphine at work and refused to go to um, recovery, refused to go to a treatment program. It's very common for nurses and doctors to have addiction issues, um, especially back then when you could just take, you know, when my mother would take handfuls of pills home every night. I mean, you can't do that anymore. And, um, and so her life after that, after she lost her nursing license and couldn't keep a job, it just totally unraveled. My sister came out to visit me for what was supposed to be a two-week Christmas vacation. At that point, I was 22. I had graduated from USC the year before, and um, and she ended up staying. You know, my mother called the day after Christmas and said she didn't want to be a mother anymore, and she wanted me to take my sister for a while. And I had seen how my sister's life had really unraveled as well, and I was really concerned. And so I just told my mother that if I take her, I, I'm not giving her back. And that's what happened. Um, We ended up, I was 22. My sister was eight. We ended up eventually going to court and I sued for legal custody and won. So I raised my sister all through my 20s. We just talked about when you're going through a path, you're going all in. Was this something that 
you were going to do anything to make sure you had custody to the safety of your sister to protect her from this situation, but also give her a life that she deserves to have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All in. Absolutely. She was my top priority. What was the biggest thing that you guys bonded over during the time as the age difference is there, but you kind of learned something new from different generations. That's true. Well, I I can hear her right now. It wasn't music. We had very different taste <laughs> in music. Although I appreciate her music now more than I did then. Um, gosh, I think we just bonded over inside jokes. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, we and we, we liked reading a lot of the same types of fiction. So we bonded over books. But I mean, we had totally different taste in movies, different taste in music, different taste in clothes. So, um None of, none of those things. Did she challenge you at all to become a better person or did she make it easy for you to take care of her? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yes and no. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was very challenging because she'd only ever known me as her sister. She never known me as a parent and she was mad, rightfully so. I mean, she was kind of dumped basically and and my mother actually did not even say anything to her. And so I had to be the one to tell her, oh, and by the way, now you're staying in Los Angeles. And she wasn't having it. And she threw this, I still remember, a huge temper tantrum, like crazy temper tantrum. And so I told her, this was back in the day, I'm really going to age myself. This is back in the day when you could call the airlines and make a reservation over the phone. And they would hold it for 24 hours without a credit card. They would hold it. So I called her bluff because she was like, I'm just going to go home and, uh, you know, and here she is, she's eight and, and she's throwing stuff around. I mean, it was really bad. And so I told her, I said, okay, fine. So I called the airlines right in front of her. I made a reservation for the next day, knowing I had no way, by the way, of paying for this reservation. <laughs> it wasn't going to happen. And then I just hung up the phone and I said, okay, start packing, you know, pack your stuff up. Let's do it. And I left her alone because I, I, she just had to get it all out of her system. And I waited in the living room and, you know, I I mean, at that point she'd only been there, I don't know, a week. And I knew that was a pretty critical turning point that she had, she had to see me as a parent first. And so she came out after about an hour and she said, okay, I want to stay. And, and so I laid down what the rules of the house were. And I told her that I was her parent first, then a, her sister. And then I told her one day when you grow up, I hope I'm your friend. And she said, okay, parent, sister, friend. And that was, that was a huge, huge turning point. She was still challenging. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, but that was really critical and kind of laying down boundaries. Did this change your career path in any way? where you couldn't leave her alone, but you couldn't go maybe doing a bunch of auditions and things like that. Did you kind of change the path? It did. I I still pursued acting, um, but it was really hard to sort of keep a, a regular full-time job because I wanted to be on her schedule. Mm-hmm. And there was a period of time where I had like four part-time jobs and two of them I could take her with me. And so that worked out really well. I mean, she and she even uh, ended up landing an acting gig because I took her with me to a job where I was teaching acting to children. And there was this opportunity. A manager came in and was looking for a kid for this one thing. And of course, 
that person was supposed to pick one of the kids for my class and instead picked my sister (laughs) 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 who did not care at all about acting. She was like, whatever. Okay. This will be fun. You know, she's like, I get paid a hundred bucks. This is great. Um, you know, and it, yeah. So I took her with me as much as I could. And then eventually I actually became a teacher so I could be on her schedule. And I was a substitute teacher. And that way I had the flexibility if I needed to go out auditions. But um, but mainly I was on her schedule. And that was the most important thing. After teaching, what was next for you? Or what was going on in your life during those times? So... To answer that question, I have to um, explain, and we can go as as deep or as shallow as you like. So Adrian was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer one month after her 15th birthday, very suddenly, um, right toward the end of her first year of high school. And so that that changed the whole course of my, my life. Um, I actually quit work uh, to take care of her during that time. And she was only sick 147 days and she died a few months after my 29th birthday. So that the following year, I'm 30 years old and I was, I was really lost. Um, I kind of went back to acting. I mean, I did go back to acting television and movies, just background work so I could have an income Um, and it was also the kind of job where I could just show up and not think too much and, and just kind of lose myself and my grief. Um, but I also ended up starting a nonprofit dedicated to the very specific type of liver cancer that killed Adrian. And so that was how 20 years ago I started becoming a patient advocate. Was there any signs prior to the diagnosis that kind of was, alarming or did you kind of know something was going on? Did she kind of feel different? Something like that? She had three, three signs. Um, she was having a lot of heartburn and, and she was chewing Tums like they were candy, you know, like they were Tic Tacs or something. And, you know, the way I reacted was, well, I can control what she eats at home, but I couldn't control what she ate at school. And so I was like, stop eating tacos at school, you know, just stop eating the crap at school. Um, so I was a little concerned, but I wasn't too worried about it. And then she, um, had stopped getting her period that worried me. I was so worried she was pregnant because she had a very serious boyfriend and I thought, oh my God, oh God, oh God. (laughs) You know, and I confronted her on it and she, she, she wasn't having sex and she said no. And, and so I was a little worried about that, but she was scheduled for her regular physical. And I had told her, I said, well, you're old enough now. We're going to get your first pelvic exam because I, I did think, okay, something might be wrong. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing, which is directly related to very advanced liver cancer, but you would never know. And I certainly don't want to scare anybody, but two weeks before we got that news from an ER doctor, she had hurt her shoulder and she thought she had dislocated it. And we went to her pediatrician and it wasn't dislocated, but it was in pain. And so he gave her some ibuprofen, sent her home and said, take it easy in dance class, which was her PE credit. And that was it. And exactly two weeks to the day is when I came home from work and found her on the floor of the living room, curled up in a fetal position, crying and took her to her pediatrician. He thought we were back because of the shoulder pain. And, um, and we said, no. 
fast forward, he sent us to the ER. The ER did a CAT scan. And it was actually the CAT scan that showed that she had tumors on her liver and lungs. And so right shoulder pain, again, not to scare anyone, can be a sign of a very advanced liver cancer because there's a nerve that goes from our liver all the way up to our right shoulder. It's called referred pain. Wow. Yeah. 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 You would never know. I mean, yeah. And liver cancer is often not diagnosed even now till yeah. later stages because our liver doesn't have pain receptors, you know? So for my sister, she kept saying, I can't breathe. Well, what had happened is her liver had gotten large enough that it was pressing on her diaphragm and she literally couldn't breathe because of the compression on her diaphragm. So you talked about creating the nonprofit for the exact type of liver cancer that your sister went through. What's the biggest message or mission that you are doing with the nonprofit in kind of the honor of your sister? What's, what are you trying to share to the public? Well, Blue Fairy's overall mission is to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer, specifically hepatocellular carcinoma through research, education, advocacy. And, um, and at, at our core, we started with the education component because most people just don't know or have huge misconceptions about liver cancer. And then a few years ago, we launched um, our public awareness initiative called Love Your Liver, which is not only about liver cancer, but also about liver disease and prevention. And that's one of the tough things about liver cancer is once you get it, it's one of the deadliest cancers. Um, it's the third largest cause of cancer deaths worldwide, but it's also one of the most preventable cancers. So the more people know about their liver um, and how important it is, can't live without it, um, and liver disease, then um, hopefully the more we can prevent it. Is there anything that you've learned with school that help, has helped you in creating this nonprofit? Because we talked about where you went to dance school, acting right. school, and that entrepreneurial style probably wasn't in your mind, like, I'm going to create this until right, the moment happens. So is there anything that you've done that has helped you be where you are today as an entrepreneur, as a leader, someone that has a mission to get words out there? You know, I think ballet makes you very, very disciplined, extremely disciplined. When you have two to three hour and a half ballet classes a day, Monday through Friday, in addition to schoolwork, and you are used to living in pain and you're used to your toenails falling off and, um, you know, and, and it's a very disciplined art form. I mean, it's, it's very much, um, it's, it's, it's very athletic, much more athletic, I think, than people realize. Um, although I think people are more aware now. Um, yeah, it's the, dis it's the discipline and the drive that, that I had with ballet that really, really helped a lot. As a speaker, what are you hoping to share with people and what's that main goal? Well, I just, I love it. First of all, I love speaking. I love interacting with people and I've done an, a little bit here and there over the last five years. And this year I'm getting really serious about it. And it's funny you should ask because I'm still kind of trying to figure out what's the main message. Mm -hmm. um, I have spoken about patient advocacy. I've spoken about death and dying. I've spoken about physician burnout, but, um, but I think the main message I'm kind of circling on right now 
Um, and it's the main message from my book. And judging from the reviews, most people understand it. It's that, you know, when Adrian was diagnosed, we, we thought winning this quote unquote battle against cancer was going to be that she survived. And that's not what happened. But when I look back at all the choices she made during that time and how she seemed very consciously aware that she wasn't going to make it. And so she, she decided to do everything she had ever wanted to do and, and, and did almost this entire sort of invisible bucket list that she had, including meeting her favorite rock star twice. So, and she made those things happen. I supported her, but, but I wasn't the driving force. She was. And so I feel like most people take away from my book that she still won, you know, she never let cancer beat her It never beat her spirit. She still won. She still went out her way. Um, I was able to make sure that she died at home, surrounded by people who loved her. And I think that's really, really important is that sometimes we get caught up in what we think is winning or society's version of winning. And at the end of the day, you have to define what that is for yourself. Who was her favorite rock star? Uh, Dave Navarro from Jane's Addiction. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She loved all of these, uh, all art, alt rock. Is that what they still call it? I don't know. Bands from the nineties, early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of mentioned a little earlier, just minutes ago about writing a book. When Mm -hmm. was the exact moment you knew that you wanted to start writing a book? I wanted to write a story. Well, I've always loved writing and, and actually wrote a play and directed and produced it in my twenties. And I always wanted to write the story of me and Adrian, because I knew what we had was really special. I didn't think the story I was going to write is the one I ended up writing, right? Because mm-hmm. I didn't expect her to get cancer. I didn't expect to lose her. Um, and, but it was still there um, even after she was gone. And so a little less than a year after she died, I realized that if I was going to write this, I had to start interviewing people. And so I always tell people, if you're writing nonfiction and you, you need the input of other people you know, get it as soon as you possibly can while the memories are fresh. And so yeah. even though I didn't start writing it, then I did interview everyone who would let me interview them. And it was great. And and their memories were so fresh. And, and that's why there is so much dialogue in the book. It's because it came directly from the source, from all these different people that were involved. Um, and And then, you know, it took me a really long time. You know, it was not... It was not an easy experience. It was not cathartic. Um, I wish people would stop saying that because it's <laughs> not true. Um, or it wasn't true in my case. And uh, because I, I really, for me to get it on the page the way I, way I wanted it, because I wanted people to feel like they were sort of right there living it with us, I really had to relive it. And, and that was not easy. So, and it took two years to write just the first draft. Was there anything that when you went back and interviewed those people that shocked you or I didn't know this at the time everything was happening? Um, not really. No, because the one person that probably could have given me that information would not let me interview him. And he's a major character in the book, but he wouldn't let me. So, Would that person change the directory of the book? Would you think if that information was in there, do you think people would think differently or learn something new that they didn't expect? No, there was just this one scene where I really wished I had known what had happened. 
Mm-hmm. And and he did tell me years later, he told me after he read the book and he told me, you know, do you want to know what I said? I said, yeah, I kind of do because I didn't know and I could I didn't put words in his mouth. And and he told me what had actually happened. Um, so that was the only case. It was it wouldn't have changed the the book um, or the structure or anything like that. When did the book get published and released to the public? It's been uh Oh my God, three years in the fall of 2019. And then I just less a week ago today drove to Nashville to do more pickups for the audiobook. And so the audiobook will be out in a couple of months. What has been the reaction or the messages that you've received from people reading it? Well, I heard this great piece of advice um, before I even published, and it was, you know. Writers can get usually two out of three things, and you have to decide ahead of time what those two out of three things are going to be. So you can make money from selling your book, you can become a New York Times bestseller, or you can be critically acclaimed. But it's really hard to be all three. You know, it's really, really difficult. And so my intention going into it was I want my book to be accepted by the medical community. So for me, that's critical acclaim. And I want to make money selling books. And I just let the New York Times bestseller thing go. So, um, because I'm not traditionally published. Um, and, and so I let that go. And I'm so happy. Like one of my very early goals was, first of all, I got a lot of endorsements from doctors ahead of time. And that was amazing. But then I really wanted my book to be in the Mayo Clinic patient library. They have this beautiful library at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and it's all for patients. And I was like, I want my book in that library. And it is. Mm-hmm. And and so I think it it's good to have like really specific goals like that. Now, my book is in a lot of libraries, not just that one. But it was really important to me that it would be in that particular library. And it has won lots of awards, which has been really nice. I feel that the critically acclaimed is a huge moment for you like that is the main mission just hearing learning more about your story you could care less about the new york best time seller right yeah i talked about earlier sometimes there's followers that get new york time sellers and do they really deserve it for some cases but your mission is the important part in what you are trying to share and i think that is the main thing that you were focused on and i think it's interesting the two out of three where not many people get all three, but it's like, where do you want to lie? And I think mostly it's probably the money is the one, but the other two are so different that right. that's where you want to fit in. Yeah, they they are really different. It's funny because I was um, doing a signing for my book, but also kind of giving a workshop because it was other writers. And this was like the year after. Rachel Hollis hit it really big with her first nonfiction book, her first true memoir. I guess she'd written a lot of fiction prior to that. And, and her book is a New York times bestseller and she's made a lot of money from the book and she had a traditional publishing contract, but no critical claim whatsoever, like zero, I mean, zero. It's kind of crazy. Um, and so I think that's just kind of a good example of, yeah, you have to choose. You have to know you know, where you're going to go, what are you going to do with it? So with interviewing, especially being getting into podcasting, I don't know the exact what your show is about, but did that kind of lead you to what can I do next? Or how did you get into podcasting? Well, in a very um, 
circuitous way. So two years before my book was published, um, I, I had worked with many editors. Um, I had great mentors who were all very successful writers and, and, but I could not get my book traditionally published because the feedback I got from agents was, you know, the writing is excellent. The story is amazing. It's sad. It has a sad ending. It's not a, it's not a Hollywood or Disney ending. And I'm like, well, I can't change the ending. It's a true story. Yeah. <laughs> and so finally I was like, you know, I want to put that to the test. And so I planned in very early 2017, I decided to do a video series of the book because at that point it had been finished and polished for so long and basically released the episodes exactly the way it happened to us over those 147 days. Cause the book is written like a diary mm-hmm. and I'm not kidding you. I had the whole thing planned out, like how many episodes I would do when they would go live, had the whole thing scheduled. And the last minute I thought, well, this would be kind of cool. Why don't I just strip the audio and repurpose it and create a podcast? I had no idea what I was doing. None. And so it really is sort of an audio version of the book without like a lot of stuff that has now since been taken out because, because of, um, uh, what's the word? Not censorship, but, uh, copyright issues. Like a lot of song lyrics and stuff had to be removed from the final book. But anyway, so I do this video series simultaneously with this podcast that is very low quality, but okay. It's, it's all right. <laughs> and the video series is like, wah, wah, you know, the podcast took off. It just took off. And I did very little promo for it, like right at the beginning. And then I never promoted it again. And, and I'm not kidding. I just got an email a few months ago from a doctor who binged the entire podcast. It's 40 episodes and he binged it over one weekend and wrote me this lovely long email about how much it meant to him as a person, as a doctor, what he learned, you know, and I'm like, my podcast is still discoverable. What? You know, (laughs) cause it was just this 40s, you know, limited series. Right. And, um, and so that's kind of how I got into podcasting and I found I really loved it, like really, really loved it. And then um, a few years ago, I started a show called Cancer Youth Thrivers um, and it's through my other company, Cancer University. And so I was already interviewing people and having them share their stories with our community. And again, I was kind of like, why am I not repurposing this content? And so I had a lot of just backlog of content. And so I started releasing an episode every week and or I think we're on episode like 111 or 112 or something like that, but there's a new episode that goes out every Tuesday. And so I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, or providers. I mentioned before we started recording this part about learning from my guests. Is there anything you've learned from listening to your guests when they're sharing their story and how they were challenged, rising to the challenge in a way? Yeah. So one of my favorite questions, it's, it's, it's a loosely structured interview, but there are some questions I always try to ask. And one of my favorite questions to ask is what's one thing you wish you had known at the beginning of your cancer journey, whether they're still a patient survivor caregiver, or they take care of cancer patients. Um, and consistently across the board, it's about mental health. It's about the, the mental health part of this very physical 
journey and how they weren't expecting that. And for some people that the mental health issues start while they're battling cancer, but for many people, it's actually when it's done and they actually hear the words, you're in remission. And then all of a sudden, you know, they've had anywhere from six months to maybe even two years of constant, you know, appointments where their whole lives were dictated by this disease and they had a community. They were surrounded by a very consistent community, whether it was doctors, nurses, other people, patients in the clinic. And then all of a sudden that's just taken away and it's like, okay, good luck, go home. And, and I've lost track of the number of people that ended up completely changing them after a cancer diagnosis. Wow. It just, yeah. So many, very, very few people go back to doing what they were doing before. Very few. Looking at your overall story and journey that you've been on, is there, do you feel where you are today, you have learned so much and have gone through the steps to get to where you are today? Obviously, we wish some things were not the route that it's taken, but do you feel that you still have that mission and what you believe in that you are sharing with the world? Yeah, I believe I, I was, I was put here to, to help cancer patients and caregivers and to teach people how to become advocates for their health because at the end of the day it's on it's on you and I learned that I I learned that a little bit I I mentioned our mother was a nurse so I kind of grew up you know with that mentality that you have to take care of your your health first but I especially learned it with my sister I kept a medical diary and I got the nastiest looks from nurses and especially doctors that I was writing everything down But then during her second round of chemo, they came to me and they asked me how much pain medication they had given her during the first round of chemo because they lost her entire medical record. They, it was 20 years ago and they were going from paper to digital and they hadn't quite made that transformation yet. And her whole first round of chemo, which was two weeks in the hospital, they lost her entire record and they had to come to me and I had all that information written down. And, and that's when I was like, yeah, you gotta, you've got to be on top of it. Yeah. You have to be on top of it. And you know that. Oh yeah. It's like, that's just shocking to me. If I had an experience <laughs> where my doctors didn't have the files, I would be, as a patient, I would be screaming. Like <laughs> I would be getting mad at those doctors, but let's be honest. Some of those doctors nowadays, they do the same thing. Like somehow it doesn't get from paper to digital files and they're all. Well, the, the, the digital files don't even get me going on this, this rant, but the digital systems don't talk to each other. Like the exactly. different EHRs, it's, it's mind boggling to me. So, so I go to almost every doctor's appointment ahead of time. Like I actually have a follow-up tomorrow with a piece of paper printed out with my current medications every surgery I've ever had, every illness I've ever had. And whenever they start to ask me about it, I'm like, here, here, this is yours. Keep it. I'm not going to write it down again. I'm not going to know, you know, because they ask the same questions over and over. It's like, no, here it is. There you go. That's we're all, we're good. So, <laughs> A lot of our listeners love to learn more about the person that we're interviewing. What are some fun things you do nowadays? Oh gosh. Um, I work a lot, so I don't think I do a whole lot that's fun. I love my dog. 
my dog, I love my animals, but my dog is very, very, my dog has got almost 50,000 followers on Instagram. It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know, right? We're figuring, we're trying to figure out how to monetize the dog. Um, <laughs> so I love my dog. Um, and that started just as a kind of a joke side project and kind of blew up, obviously. And um, yeah, I mean, I wish I could spend more time at the beach. I, I don't spend nearly enough time at the beach. Um and I read. I read every day. I love to read. So that hasn't changed. That's been since I was a kid. Is there any personal or professional goals do you have for yourself that you hope to accomplish in the next few years or anything you're looking forward to? Yeah, I'm looking forward to making speaking a major part of my time and career. I'm really looking forward to it. So, Do you have a dream stage you'd like to speak at? Um, yes and no, not, not a stage per se. I mean, I I think everybody who's a speaker wants to do a TEDx talk. So, or TED talk. So I would love to do that. Um, but there's also an opportunity at the largest medical conference in the U S where this one particular company puts on this incredible event every year. And it's finally back in person this past year. It was back in person after three years and, they always have the best speakers and I want to do that keynote one day. You never know what can happen. Yeah. I got my eye on on it. (laughs) (laughs) The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? I would say don't let, fear stand in your way. And I think that when you boil it down, almost always fear comes back to a fear of some kind of change. And, you know, I lived in LA LA over 20 years. The last year I was in LA, really the last four years, but especially the last year, I was very unhappy. I was unhappy living there. I was unhappy in my marriage. And I had never been that ambivalent in my whole life. And it, it wasn't a good time. I just couldn't make a decision. And I was so afraid of leaving. I was really, I had, I was done with LA. I really was done. And I didn't know where I wanted to go. And one day I was like, what, what's the worst thing that could happen? Like, what is the word? Why don't I just leave? Because no matter when I leave, whether I leave now or I wait a whole nother year or two years or whatever, it's still going to be really scary. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a lot of different versions of this quote and a lot of people get accredited with it, but it's something like, um, Fear is not lack of courage. Uh, courage is having fear and moving forward anyway. And so that's why I always tell people, like, if you wait for the fear to go away, nothing will ever happen. It will never happen. And I think that's maybe one of the only blessings about cancer is that you are really forced to live in the present and make decisions very often, very quickly. And you you don't have time to be paralyzed by fear. You just don't. It doesn't mean you're not scared, but you just... you. You can't not act when you hear the C word. And so I think that's that's one of the blessings of of cancer. Um, but one day I just said, okay, I'm done. I'm done with LA. I'm going to leave. And from the day I made that decision, it was less than two months later that I left. Wow. And, and the house that I lived in for 13 years, the longest I lived anywhere in my life. So, yeah, it was eight weeks of crazy. Let me put it that way. <laughs> Selling things, donating, 
trashing, whatever. Um, but, uh, and it was such a good decision that I made. Well, Andrea, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Well, thank you so much, Alex. Tune in next time. Hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe on all major audio platforms. And make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel through the full-length episode and video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.